Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, a visit to a small room that holds virtually our entire record of life in the Warsaw Ghetto. This week, Tablet is reporting from Warsaw, which is commemorating the 70th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. The official ceremony will be held today, April 19th, next to the brand new Museum of the History of Polish Jews. The museum, which you can read all about on Tablet, is a spectacular glass and concrete structure, still empty for the most part, that has been 20 years in the making, at a cost of more than $100 million. Proponents of the museum believe it represents a huge step forward in helping Polish-Jewish relations. Critics say it's too Jewish, or not Jewish enough. The one thing that everyone seems to agree on is that, like it or not, this museum, which will rely on multimedia exhibits to tell its story, is not and will never be a home to artifacts. Meanwhile, about a mile away, on a slightly run-down side street, sits an archive that has been collecting Polish-Jewish artifacts continually from before the war to the present. It's called the Jewish Historical Institute, and it holds what is arguably one of the most precious collections we have. Ten metal boxes and two metal canisters worth of documents, letters, and other records of daily life in the Warsaw Ghetto. I went to visit this archive earlier in the week. With me was Samuel Cazzo, an American historian who wrote a book on the archive and its creator, Emanuel Ringelblum. As you'll hear, things didn't go exactly as planned. For the most part, the Jewish Historical Institute is a place for scholars of Jewish history to sit quietly in reading rooms, poring over copies of old documents. But the day I came to visit, the place was a buzz. There were TV crews, sound check guys, men in suits with earbuds. Pavel Spivak, who runs the institute, explained what all the fuss was about. No, because we are waiting today for the president of Poland, so we will come here to our institute. First time in the history of the institute. In just a few hours, for the first time ever, Poland's president was coming to the institute to attend the opening of a special art exhibit. Meanwhile, Professor Cazzo, who had flown in from New York earlier that day, was apparently on site, but no one seemed to know where to find him. Now, my plan had been to ask Professor Cazzo to give us a little background on the archive before we went in, but that wasn't what the archivist had in mind, so I'll give you a little background here. The Jewish Historical Institute was created in 1947, but it's essentially a continuation of an institute started in 1928. It sits in the same elegant building, which was damaged during the war and then rebuilt. Their holdings include a variety of collections about Jewish life in Poland, but the one that's most famous, and the one I'm here to see, is the Emanuel Ringelblum Archive, named after the man that created it. There is a lot to say about Ringelblum. Cazzo is an expert on him, but I'll just tell you that he was born in 1900 and that by 1940 he was an historian, a husband, and a father, and that in the fall of that year he, along with all the other Jews of Warsaw, was forced to relocate to the Warsaw Ghetto. The ghetto was then sealed off, surrounded by a 10-foot wall with barbed wire on top. Before this happened, Ringelblum had already begun documenting the day-to-day life of Polish Jews. But after the ghetto was established, he recruited dozens of others to join him. They formed a secret society, codenamed Oynig Shabbos, or Joy of the Sabbath. Their task was to interview people, take surveys, record observations, collect posters, tickets, candy wrappers, whatever they could think of to capture the past and present of Jews in the ghetto. When the Oynik Shabbos group began this project, it had a kind of optimism to it. They were documenting Jewish life and Jewish suffering for future generations of Jews. 
By late 1942, it seemed quite likely that no such future would ever exist. Ringelblum decided that their best and perhaps only hope was to bury their work deep underground so that maybe someday someone might find it. And that's where the metal boxes and milk canisters come in, because they were the only thing that stood between those papers and all the fire and destruction of the next few years. During that time, all but three members of the Oinig Shabbos Society perished. Remarkably, one of those survivors was among the handful of people who knew where the archive had been hidden, and in 1946, he led a team of Poles and Jews to dig through the rubble. A few years later, Polish construction workers accidentally discovered the milk cans. Some of the archive was damaged beyond repair. Much of it has never been found. But today, the Jewish Historical Institute holds more than 25,000 pieces of paper collected by Ringelblum and his colleagues. Hi, I'm Julie. So nice to meet you. Thanks nice for doing this. Okay. Yeah, I just got in from the airport. Yeah. Professor Cazzo and I have found each other, and together we follow a woman with a set of keys out of the lobby and down a short corridor where she lets us into a cool storage space, smaller than my hotel room. It's lined with wide metal lockers, a flat file cabinet, and a single desk in the middle of the room. This is the archive. In a corner, on a small table, sit two banged-up tin boxes. Next to that, protected by a plexiglass case, is a rusted, ancient-looking milk can. The archivist is named Agnieszka Ryszka. She puts on rubber gloves and unlocks one of the lockers. So, you've been in here before? Uh, I have not. I, oh, I always worked in that room over there. And uh, I was never allowed to come into this room. She takes out a folder and shows us some letters and postcards with faded handwriting. So this file uh, has uh, correspondence uh, which uh, came from Lublin district uh, to Warsaw ghetto about uh, the fate of members of family uh, of, of these people. So, for example... This is... Yeah. This is someone who escaped from Chelmno, and uh, he was the first person to bring information about a German death camp, and he arrived in the Warsaw Ghetto. The Oenik Shabbos took him in hand and then sent him, uh, then sent him out of the Warsaw Ghetto uh, to the Lublin or Zamosh region, and uh, he was killed in Belgians. But uh, this is very dramatic correspondence of uh, the first escapee from a German death camp. Something about this enclosed space makes all of us speak softly. Next, we move to the flat files. In one drawer is an astonishingly well-preserved stack of posters. One announces a symphony concert taking place at the Melody Palace. Another, issued by the Jewish counselor Judenrat, announces the time and place to buy rations. For example, about that marmalade will be will, will be sold uh, on uh, carts and price of uh, of this. And so, does it say when it announces? Uh, when it is uh, um, from 15th to 31st March of 1941. And then this one. Very uh, characteristic for this uh, period of the Second World War in Poland and especially for ghetto, where you can see, you have instruction what to do with uh, the frozen potatoes. Because the Germans dumped frozen potatoes as part of the rations. 
And so there, there was the provisioning department, and uh, they uh, issued these instructions for how to cook the ruined potatoes so that they would have some nutritional value. And it's in Yiddish and it's in Polish. I'm translating very approximately. Uh, you have to uh, put them in cold water for one to th- three hours. After uh, taking them out of the cold water, you have to rinse them. And uh, you then have to put the potatoes unpeeled uh, into uh, boiling water and, uh, and uh, cook them. Uh, thereby, you can get good and tasty uh, potatoes. Uh, these frozen potatoes should never be stored because they will go rotten very, very uh, quickly. Tell your friends uh, how one can cook these frozen potatoes. The provisioning council uh, in the Jewish living quarter in Warsaw in November 1941, which was also the same month that they began shooting Jews who left the ghetto to try to smuggle food. We look at an eviction notice from 1942, which informs residents of this block and that block, many, many blocks, that they have to leave their homes immediately. This was at the height of the deportations. And this was one of the terrible aspects of the deportations because they were constantly forcing you to leave your home. So if you built a hiding place or if you'd stored food or done anything, you, you lost it because you had to go somewhere else. By the way, when a deportation had taken place, sometimes Ringelblum would rush to the apartment of a writer or somebody that he knew to see if he had left diaries or documents. Another folder contains handwritten notes, these by a rabbi named Shimon Huberband, who took it upon himself to chronicle the construction of synagogues and cemeteries in parts of Poland. So it's a description of the beginning of the Alexander dynasty near, near Lodz. And then it goes on, if I turn the pages, which I won't, but it goes on how the Germans destroyed the, uh, uh, the synagogue. And one of the things that Ringelblum writes about in his diary is how the Germans systematically destroyed old Jewish antiquities, Jewish buildings, old uh, old, uh, uh, architectural uh, monuments, which testified to the Jews' rootedness on the Polish soil. The Jews were in Poland for eight centuries. And Ringelblum was very concerned about the fact that the Germans were trying to erase the very memory of the Jewish presence. So this was part of a big project to document the systematic destruction of old synagogues. I asked Professor Cazzo if there's anything else we should ask to see, but as he points out, it's a rather absurd question. I mean, you have 25 to 30,000 documents. The catalog that Indiana and the Holocaust Museum issued a couple years ago comes to 500 pages. So there's an enormous amount of material. I mean, there are some very amazing documents here. Uh, Little notes written from the Umschlagplatz, people waiting to get on the train to Treblinka, sending notes out saying, help me get out of here. 
There's not a minute to lose. There, there are letters, there are notes like that in the Ring of Bloom archive. Uh, there are postcards uh, sent into the Warsaw Ghetto from Jews in little towns who are about to be deported. Uh, there's, there's an interview uh, taken by Rachel Auerbach of Avram Shapitsky, who escaped from Treblinka in September 42. The interview itself comes to over 100 pages, which is the most uh, detailed description of Treblinka. Uh, there are diaries. Uh, there are children's essays, What Do I Want to Do When the War is Over? Uh, there's just an incredible amount of material. Of course, we'd like to see more, but the president of Poland is coming, and it seems time to leave, so we do. But leaving that plain, cold room with the fluorescent light and the metal cabinets feels like leaving a sacred place. Not exactly a synagogue, not really a cemetery either, just a place filled with the things people left behind for us to know them by. Once we say our thank yous and goodbyes, Professor Kazo and I go to a cafe where I interview him for 30 minutes, all about Ringelblum and his mission, about how they managed to find the hidden archive in the first place, about what it's meant for historians. And actually, it was a really interesting conversation. But today, on the 70th anniversary of the ghetto uprising, I think it makes more sense to leave you there, on the steps of the Emanuel Ringelblum Archive. If you'd like to know more about the Warsaw Ghetto or the Jews of this city or lots of other related subjects, do come check out our coverage at tabletmag.com. For more information about what you heard today, Samuel Caso's book is an outstanding resource. It's called Who Will Write Our History? Emanuel Ringelblum, The Warsaw Ghetto, and the Oinig Shabbos Archive. Special thanks to him and also to Pavel Spivak and Agnieszka Ryszka for our visit to the archive. I'm Julie Subrin. As always, thank you for listening. Hope you'll join us again next week.